Most of us, I think if not all of us, probably know people who don't believe what we believe, right? Unless you live in a a cave somewhere deep in the wilderness, you certainly have encounters with people from time to time outside of your immediate circle of friends and family, maybe even within that circle, who don't believe what you believe. We all do. That's actually actually a really good thing because Jesus commanded us to make disciples. And so the fact that we have relationships with and encounters with others who are not followers of Jesus Christ simply means that we don't have to look very far to do what Jesus commanded us to do. Of course, making disciples is much bigger than just evangelism. Evangelism is certainly a part of the first step of true discipleship, which is really a lifelong process. But without evangelism, without people coming to faith and becoming followers of Jesus Christ, there can be no discipleship. So obviously these relationships and encounters that we all have with unbelievers are necessary for us to be able to fulfill our calling, our our commission from Jesus. And therefore we should not only welcome them, but we should be seeking out relationships and encounters that afford us opportunities to share something beautiful, as Eric Metaxas put it in the video, with those who are lost. And there have been many, uh, certainly many church programs over the decades, at least in my lifetime, that have focused on different ways to share the gospel with others. And some of those, I think, were very effective at different levels. So I'm not critical of any of that. But the truth is, sharing the gospel with people can and should be a very natural and consistent part of our lives without it having to be forced or presented in an unnatural or or awkward way. Our faith, our testimony, our disciplined study of the word, our prayer life, and our relationship with Jesus Christ and the church, all of those hallmarks of the Christian life should flow very naturally and and very consistently through our lives by way of our conversations and our actions and our attitudes, our choices, our commitments, all of that. Living out the gospel, which by the way is a part of our church title, our logo, Upcountry Church, experiencing life together, living out the gospel. That living out of the gospel should be so much of who we are at our core that we don't have to work up the courage or learn a program to share it because it very simply and very naturally flows out of everything that we say and do regardless of who we are around. When I was pastoring a church in Alaska, uh, I got a call one day in my office from a young woman, and she said, Pastor, I just uh, moved to Alaska from the lower 48, and um, I am enrolled at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks, and I'm getting a master's degree in cultural anthropology. And for my thesis, my research work, I'm now uh, tasked to study evangelical church, religion, this aspect of religion. And uh, I have called more than a dozen churches in town and asked them this same question and I've been rejected by every single one of them. So she said, I'm just being honest with you. I need to come to a church and be able to sit in a church every week for a few months and record the sermons. Uh, I'm going to take a lot of notes on things that you say. I really need to be able to interview the pastor from time to time. And I'm just going to tell you the truth. She said, I'm not a Christian. And I'm not interested in becoming a Christian. This is strictly research work that I need to do 
for a school and I'm running out of options in this little town and I'm just asking you, is there any way you would let me do that? And I said, I would love for you to do that. Of course I would love for you to do that. And she was blown away because I said yes and no one else had. So this girl shows up on Sunday and as soon as the service is over, like we do with people here all the time, if you're visiting, we, we went up to her and said, hey, when are you free? Can, next week can we take you out to lunch? And she said, sure. She didn't know anybody. She hadn't even met any, hardly any kids at school. And so as the weeks went on, she's sitting there in service taking copious notes and recording things and she's interviewing me from time to time. Uh, but we're also becoming friends with this girl. See, well, all of our, our friends were church people, and it's like they are now. And so we would go out to movies, and we'd invite her along. There was no agenda. We weren't secretly trying to undermine or do something. We're just being who we are. We're loving on this person in our church. And so she began to develop relationships and friendships within the church. And it was really a significant thing to her. And she would make comments about how nice everyone was being to her even though we knew why she was there and we kept telling her, well, we just, we just want to be friends. That's, that's all. There's, no, there's nothing more than that right now. We just want to be your friend. And one day she slid off the road into the snow and she was stuck. A typical, they call them chichacos in Alaska. If you're not from there, you're a newbie, a greenie, right? And she slid off the road and one of the ladies in our church saw her and pulled over and couldn't get the car out, gave her a ride to school. She was going to be late. Picked her up after school, took her home, picked her up the next day, took her to school, picked her up after school, took her back to her car, helped get the car out and get her on her way. And this girl was just completely amazed at, that someone she hardly knew would do all of that for. And then about a week later, I pulled into the local um, supermarket parking lot, the grocery store, and I saw her standing there with the hood of her car. She had this old beat up car up and she's looking down in it sort of befuddled. And I pulled up and I said, hey, what's going on? And she said, oh, man, pastor, I, my car's overheating. It's 50 below zero. I don't understand how a car can overheat. <laughs> so I don't know what to do. She didn't know anything about cars. So I start looking, and, and the, the, all of the water's evaporated out of the radiator, and the, she's low on oil. And so I said, hey, let's go in the store and get some coffee. It's freezing. Uh, we'll get some oil and some, some radiator fluid and put the right kind of mixture of stuff you should have up here in your car, and we'll see if we can get it going. And she said, no, I appreciate that. I, it just would be best if you could call someone from the dorm maybe to come pick me up. I don't want to bother you. And I said, no, it's no bother. I'm going in the store anyway. We'll just pick up a few more things, and I'll help you when we come out. And she said, well, it's, um, she said, I'm embarrassed to say I don't have any money for that. And so I can't pay for that stuff right now. I said, I wasn't going to let you pay for it anyway. Come on. And so I took her inside, and we got her coffee and warmed up and bought all the stuff and went out and put it all in our car and we monkeyed with a few things and got it running and it wasn't overheating, it was doing good. And I said, hey, I think we got it. And I closed the hood and I looked up and she's standing there and tears are streaming down her face. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, I don't understand why you're all being so nice to me. You don't even really know me. I said, well, can I tell you why? She said, please. And I said, we all have the spirit of Christ living inside of us. We're followers of Jesus Christ. And that means something. It's not just a title or a club that we belong to. It's changed us. We're fundamentally different people than we used to be. I said, this is how we treat everybody. We're not treating you any different than we would anyone else. And what you're experiencing isn't just 
us being nice people. You're experiencing Jesus in us. That's who we are. It's a lot more than just some friendly people. And she, she couldn't fathom it. And she got in her car and she went home. And, and it's a long story. I could tell you so many more parts to that story. But the long story, the short of it is, she came back to church the next week and gave her heart to Christ. Now listen, she had been listening to me preach what I'm convinced are the greatest sermons on earth for months. <laughs> she got every bit of doctrine and theology that you could ever want from this guy. And that is not what turned her heart to Christ. You with me? It was some people who loved Jesus, loving on her. That's it. That was our, our big evangelism program. That's how it worked. It wasn't the steady dose of theology or doctrine. Just a bunch of Christians living out the gospel in front of her. Okay? We weren't working a program. We weren't trying out some new method of evangelism on this girl. We're just being who we are. We invited her along to be who we are with us. We treated her like we'd treat anyone else. And the thing is, that was enough. Because she wasn't experiencing just us. She was experiencing the Spirit of Christ within us. And yet, according to her, all of the other churches rejected her because she didn't meet their criteria for someone they wanted in their church. It shouldn't be that way. That should never be. We should be comfortable being who we are, followers of Christ, no matter who we happen to be around or who happens to come in here in these doors. And if we're around them enough, they should see and experience the difference between someone who has the Spirit of God within them and someone who doesn't. They won't necessarily understand that difference, but they will recognize that there is a difference. And that is so often the moment you'll find when the door is opened to share the gospel, the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done to make us different, okay? I didn't have to try and convince this girl to listen to my testimony I didn't have to explain to her the Romans road. I just lived it out in front of her until she asked me to explain why we were different. She opened the door and then I was able to tell her how Jesus had changed my life. It was very simple. That's called a testimony. It's very, very, very easy to share a testimony with people when your entire life is characterized by it. And so today as we continue our sermon series, and I'm going to try and move quickly working our way through the gospel according to John, we'll be looking at the next part of the story of Jesus and his friends from verse 1 of chapter 4, and we'll go to about verse 42 in a message entitled Sacred Encounters. And this part of the story is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Jesus gives us a master class on how to engage people in these sacred encounters with the gospel in a way that is honest and very natural, a way that doesn't require any special training or preparation other than simply being truthful about who you are and then living that truth out with integrity in front of them every day. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It just means we're real. My hope for all of us today as we read this part of the story together is that we'll be able to gain some perspective, some Jesus perspective when it comes to how we interact with people every single day and then maybe ask ourselves, is it possible that I could be having a greater impact in the lives of others for the sake of the gospel than I'm currently having? And again, I'm not, I'm not talking about some kind of forced conversation or method that we rehearse and then work up the courage to present to someone. I'm talking about living out the gospel in every single aspect of our lives in such a way 
that even incidental conversations with complete strangers can become sacred encounters that cause others to begin asking questions that ultimately open the door to the gospel being shared, okay? So let's jump in the story together and see what we can learn from a seemingly random encounter that Jesus has with one of the most unlikely candidates of all time. We'll start with John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that being John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sukkar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied from, uh, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus' prominence and popularity were well on the rise at this point, and he understood that because of it, there would soon be a confrontation with the religious establishment. And of course, we know that he was right about that. But he also knew that the time for that confrontation in Jerusalem had not yet come, and so instead he returned to Galilee. And verse 4 says that he had to pass through Samaria. There's significance to that statement, which becomes clear when you read it in the ancient Greek that it was written in. The phrase had to is the Greek word die, which literally translates as to be necessary in the sense that it is binding. Okay, The point being that Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria because it was the only route to Galilee or out of some other necessity. In fact, Jews rarely ever took that route, which we'll talk more about in a moment. The the literal translation here is telling us that Jesus was bound by divine necessity, a requirement to go that way, divinely bound. And that's confirmed by the fact that in every other instance where the Greek word, this same Greek word is used in the Gospel of John, there are seven other places uh, where this same word is used. It always indicates in every instance a divinely directed requirement. So in other words, Jesus had to pass through Samaria because the Father's sovereign and providential plan required Jesus to go there. And as we continue to read in a moment, we'll see that it's because of a sacred encounter that needed to be had between Jesus and what is probably one of the more colorful characters in Scripture. But before we continue in the story, I just want to make sure that we don't miss the real significance of this statement in verse 4 which is the fact that there are no accidental encounters. The encounters that we have with other people every day, even the most seemingly random ones, are never random. They are never accidental because God is never random or accidental. God is sovereign and he is always directing our steps. Ephesians 4, 6 says that there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Colossians 1.17 says he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Psalm 139.16 says that your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. There's nothing random or accidental about God, which means that every encounter, every interaction, every conversation that we have with other people has divine potential and ultimately a divine purpose to be satisfied when we're compliant with the will of God. And yet I think it's really easy for us in our culture to assign far more value to planned interactions 
which is to say interactions that, that with others that we've planned or at least anticipated, rather than those which seem to be random to us. However, what the Hebrew people understood so well that is often lost in the, the, the Hellenistic Greek mindset that lies at the foundations of Western culture is the fact that all of it is planned. Not by us, but by God Almighty. And so that instead of looking for a purpose to the events and circumstances and encounters of our lives and indeed to our lives themselves, I get it in counseling a lot from people, just trying to find a purpose for this, we should always instead be looking for God's purpose in those events and circumstances and encounters because we understand that God always, He always has a purpose for everything because He's ultimately sovereign over everything. He's over all. He's through all and in all. That's a very Hebraic statement by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. And so understanding that there's divine purpose to every moment of our lives should have an effect. It should have a great effect on how we view even the most seemingly mundane and random interactions in our lives. We should never consider any encounter or conversation with others as pointless or unimportant or accidental. And of course, I know that that all sounds really nice for me to stand here and say that when the reality of our lives is that we are hurried and we're harried. We live at a frenetic pace in our society, which makes it very difficult to consider the potential weight of every interaction throughout our day because most of us are just trying to get things done and to get through it all so that we can get home and maybe spend some time with our families before it starts all over again the next day, right? But I want to offer a challenge to each of us that on Monday morning, from the time the alarm clock sounds off to the drive to work or to school or the, the walk to the laundry room to the, the rigors of your work, the raising of your kids, throughout the busyness of whatever you have to do that day until you lie back down that evening to try and quiet your mind and then ask God to guide your day and direct your steps to help you to be intentional about every conversation and every encounter that you have and then be sensitive, be aware of your surroundings and especially the people around you. Listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit to what he may want you to say or do for someone else that day. And then take every advantage, every opportunity to let God speak through you by your words and by your actions. If every one of us actually did that tomorrow, I guarantee you we'd have a long list of testimonies that we could share in church next Sunday about how God used us to touch someone else's life. But it will require you to quiet your mind and to listen for God's voice to direct you throughout your day. That's what Jesus did. Every single day of his life on earth, he never missed an opportunity to live out the gospel in front of others, even in what appeared to be the most mundane and random of encounters, which we find a great example of here as we continue our story. Let's read verses 7 through 26. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink of water from me, 
a woman of Samaria. She's giving him a little cheek here. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now notice how her uh, cute attitude changes rapidly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus has an encounter with a Samaritan woman at a well while he's resting. It's the sixth hour, which was noontime. It was the heat of the day. And this woman shows up at the well in, in what at first glance appears to be a common, unremarkable, insignificant passing moment but Jesus makes sure that it was anything but insignificant and in order for us to try and grasp the cultural equivalent of this encounter this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman with a present-day example we need a little backstory first okay in, in 722 BC the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by Assyria and they deported mass numbers of Jews and like the, the Babylonian exile later they were often selective about those who were taken into captivity and those who were left behind. Typically, the best and brightest within the Jewish nation were taken, and the lowest classes, the least educated, the most unskilled Hebrews among the population were left to fend for themselves. We saw that in Daniel in our last sermon series where the Babylonians took the best and brightest of the Jews. And then the Assyrians, in this case, brought in pagan peoples to resettle the capital city of the northern kingdom, which was Samaria. And so these Mesopotamian colonists, these pagan foreigners, intermarried with the Jews who were left behind. And out of those marriages were produced a mixing of cultures and religions and traditions. And they became the Samaritan people, or known as the Samaritan people. There is still a remnant of them alive today. Who to the Jews, these Samaritans, were worse than dogs. They were considered half-breeds, a mongrel faith a vile heritage. And over the centuries, an intense hatred developed between the Samaritans and the Jews. In fact, um, the first century historian Josephus records accounts 
of fighting between the Samaritans and the Jews during uh, Claudius's reign, Emperor Claudius, that were, was so intense that Roman soldiers were called in to pacify the situation. And the way they did that, the way they pacified the situation was by crucifying the rebels systematically. So there was this incredible animosity between the Jews and Samaritans. It was seething with tensions that would become white hot when the two groups encountered one another. And so with that in mind... Along comes a Samaritan woman to Jacob's well where Jesus, the perfect Jew, sat alone resting, as verse 8 tells us that the disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And you have to understand that typically when Jews traveled between Jerusalem and Galilee, they would not travel through Samaria, even though that was by far the shortest route because they wanted to avoid contact, even visual contact, with the Samaritans at all costs. Verse 9 informs us that the, the Jews have no dealings. With the Samaritans. So instead, the Jews would take this roundabout passage. They cross over the Jordan River uh, to the east and they would travel along the Trans Jordan Highway, which took much longer, but it spared them the offense of encountering these people that they hated even more than the Gentiles. And so here sits Jesus as this Samaritan woman shows up at the well in what would have been for any other Jew certainly an offensive situation on many different levels. Simply because she was a Samaritan meant there was an ethnic offense. But even beyond that, this particular Samaritan woman uh, was a woman. The Samaritans, among them, the women, were considered to be the lower gender. So there's a gender offense in her even speaking with a Jewish male as well, which she does so after Jesus asks her for some water in verse 7. And then the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as valid scripture, the Pentateuch. But even at that, they had their own version of the Pentateuch. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim instead of considering Jerusalem the center of worship. They developed their own narrative, their own rendering of Israelite history. So there was a strong religious offense, which is referenced in verse 20 of this conversation. And when women went to a well to fetch water in Jesus' day, they typically traveled in groups for safety. And they did so early in the mornings to get a fresh supply for the day's chores and then later in the evenings for overnight. And so uh, by going early and late, they could avoid the, the heat of the day. So for a woman, Samaritan, to go there alone in the middle of the day, as this woman did, speaks very clearly to the fact that she was an outcast. She had been ostracized even among her own people. And that becomes even clearer in verses 16 through 18, where Jesus reveals her promiscuous lifestyle. So in the eyes of the Jews... This woman would have been the absolute lowest of the low. There's a moral offense here as well. And of course, because of all of her transgressions and ethnicity and religious affiliations, she was considered ceremonially unclean. So there's a ceremonial offense also. And so in thinking about this encounter, trying to frame it in modern terms that would make sense to us, that we could relate to, we don't really have an exact Equivalent that we can point to in our culture, but just to try and get us close. When it comes to someone who maybe we would have an ethnic and certainly a religious offense with, imagine there's a member of ISIS standing next to you, this radical Islamist terrorist who has committed horrible acts of atrocity on many innocent people, and maybe we can begin to understand an ethnic offense and a religious offense towards someone else. And then in terms of a gender offense... Think about a transgendered person, maybe a transvestite person standing next to you, 
Maybe we can get a feel for a gender-related offense. And then imagine a prostitute standing next to you and, and the moral offensiveness of that person. And then imagine someone who has had various sexually transmitted diseases. And maybe we can begin to understand the offense of being unclean. Now, imagine if you could take all of those people and combine them into one person. And then imagine that person walking up next to you at the buffet line at Golden Corral. And you take one look at them and you ask them to fix you a plate of food while you go sit down. We wouldn't do that. No way. In fact, most of us would probably gather our children and head for the door after one glimpse of that person who offends us on so many levels. But that's not what Jesus did. He didn't run the other way in fear of that promiscuous Samaritan outcast woman that she might tarnish his holiness. She might stain his perfection that she might make him unclean. No, he did quite the opposite. He asked her to serve him a drink of water. Jesus turned what could have been an ordinary, albeit offensive, encounter into a divinely extraordinary encounter. Okay, the truth is there are no ordinary encounters. We may not always recognize the potential of any given encounter with another person on any given day. We may not ever fully understand the impact for the sake of the gospel that our actions and attitudes and our interactions may be having on those that we encounter on a daily basis, but there are no accidental or ordinary encounters. God is sovereign over every conversation, every interaction that we have, and His intention for us in those encounters is to have a lasting impact on that person's life because they experience Him in us. That's never ordinary. The fact that God wants to connect with us, both directly and through His Word and through other people, is always extraordinary, which means that we should never, ever allow ourselves in our busyness to be lulled into thinking that our lives and the impact that we are having in other people's lives is ordinary. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's nothing ordinary about that. Uh, the Reverend James Vaughn uh, preached a sermon at Christ Church in Brighton in 1867. And in that sermon, he said this, now here lies a great sin at the door, the neglect of opportunities of usefulness. They're laid at our feet everywhere, and if we had but taken them up, if we had only seen in common events the openings for influence, what a different thing would life have been, and what sad retrospects of wasted time and of useless existence might some of us have been spared this day. The way Christ went to work was this. He began with what might be called a commonplace, but he immediately took it out of commonplace and raised it to a truer tone and a higher level. That is a holy art which every follower of Christ in this world will do well to learn from his master's lips. For Jesus, there were no ordinary encounters. And to fully understand why, we need to take a moment to try and view the world the way that he does. In the very beginning of this gospel account, John explains to us that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
John 1, 1 through 3. And of course, John goes on to explain that the word is Jesus Christ, which means that Jesus was there at the creation of the heavens and the earth. He was there in the beginning when all things were made through him. And all things that were made through him includes this Samaritan woman. This woman at the well was created through him and he knew it. Do you think maybe that his view of this woman was different than how the typical Jew would see her? Christine Kane has a great line. It's in the small group curriculum that we're starting in our community groups where she says, we are not a product of time. We're a product of eternity. It's easy to think that Jesus couldn't have been there at her creation because he was on earth at the time, but the Godhead doesn't experience uh, time like we do sequentially. You see, God sees all of time all at once. In fact, he created time itself and every moment that is a part of time and space. So not only was Jesus present at this woman's creation, but her creation was accomplished through him. Again, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Paul's referring to Jesus when he says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This Samaritan woman is his creation by the way, created in his own image, according to Genesis one twenty seven, And in Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So this Samaritan woman was not only created by him, she was chosen by him. He claimed her as his own before she was even created. You see, this woman who the Jews saw as a complete misfit, a waste of space, a gigantic mistake that should have never happened, lower than a feral dog, offensive on every level. She was a child of God. She just didn't know it yet. She was created in his image by him and claimed by him as one of his own children. Now, think about how you feel about your own kids. It doesn't matter what any other kid says about your child. It doesn't matter if they're popular or unpopular, accepted or rejected by others. That is still your child and there isn't anything that anyone else can ever say about them or do to them that would ever make you love them any less. Why? Because they're your kids. That is precisely how Jesus saw this woman. That is precisely how we should see others that we encounter every single day. There are no ordinary encounters, and Jesus knew it. He certainly could have gotten his own water, but he chose to do the most unlikely thing that any Jew could ever do in that moment. He made the absolute most of that encounter by engaging her in a conversation. And initially, listen, not a conversation about God or sin or heaven or hell or church or politics. He just asked her for some water. 
And then he let the conversation develop from there. We don't have to walk into everyday encounters locked and loaded, ready to throw down some strong doctrine or a four-step program for evangelism. We simply need to recognize that there are no accidental encounters, there are no ordinary encounters, and once we open ourselves up to the possibilities of what God wants to accomplish through us, all that it takes is simply being willing to have a conversation and seeing those people for who they are. I didn't try to sell our friend in Alaska on Jesus. We were just engaging her in conversation initially, and then in friendship, and then it was all it took because she opened the door. She opened the door to her heart and mind to receive the gospel, but she had to trust us first, trust us enough to ask why we were the way that we, we were. Okay, if, you, if you're willing to see people, even the most unlikely people, the way that God sees them, look at each person as a potential future brother or sister in Christ, and then avail yourself to be used by God, often just by having a friendly conversation, so the other person has the opportunity to open the door for you to share your testimony without you ever having to force anything. But we'll never get there as long as we hold people at arm's length. We do have free will. We do have responsibility in this. We do have choices to make. We have to be willing to see every encounter as an opportunity, not an accident or ordinary, but an extraordinary opportunity to share Christ simply by how we live and love and behave and talk and conduct ourselves. There's an old saying, you've probably heard it, it says, share the gospel at all times, Use words when necessary. Now, Jesus asked for some water. And very quickly, this woman engages in conversation with him to the point that he has the opportunity to reveal the truth about himself, his true identity as the Messiah. Let's keep reading and see what the effect of this encounter with Jesus is on the Samaritan woman and the disciples. We'll read verses 27 through 38. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? You got to love these guys. <laughs> Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. He's saying, pay attention. This isn't accidental. It isn't ordinary. He says, see that the fields are white for harvest already. The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So while the Samaritan woman runs back to town in such a hurried excitement that she leaves her water jar at the well and begins telling everyone about her encounter with Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples have come back and instead of concerning themselves with the ministry that Jesus was engaged in of this sacred encounter that he was having, they marveled. First of all, they're shocked that he's talking with a woman, a Samaritan woman at that. 
They allowed the social pressures of the day to override their sensitivity to what God was trying to do in their midst, which I believe, by the way, is very common among professing believers today when it comes to sharing our faith with others. And so Jesus does with them what he always does with us. He redirects their focus back to what is most important. The sacred nature of every single encounter with every single human soul, regardless of what the culture around us says. And Jesus says to them, forget about appearances, guys. Forget about impressing people. Forget about what is urgent and focus on the opportunities to encounter others that are all around us because the fields are white for harvest. There are human souls all around us who are ready to receive the gospel. And that is so much more important than our reputations. It's so much more important than our urgent plans for the day. It's even more important than food. Come on, he says, guys, get your head in the game. This is why we're here. Make every single encounter count. Pay attention to the harvest. And then just as he teaches them about the importance of every encounter with others, even those we'd, we'd rather not have to encounter, something truly amazing happens. Let's finish our story for today. Verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So first of all, it only took one encounter with Jesus to turn a misfit into a missionary. The Samaritan woman goes back to her hometown, and because of her testimony, many other Samaritans come to faith in Christ. This is the power of an encounter with others who don't know him when, when we allow the testimony of what he's done in our lives to shine through everything that we say and do. People will see your genuineness, your excitement about what Christ has done in your life when you share with them. And in verse 42, these other Samaritans say something really insightful to the Samaritan woman. They say, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Okay, there are no secondhand encounters. At the end of the day, when it comes to Jesus, you may initially believe because of someone else's testimony, which is why it's so important that we share our testimony with others. But ultimately, for a person's life to be truly transformed by Christ, they must have their own encounter with Him. We cannot be saved through someone else's faith. And so our testimony can lead someone to faith, but they must encounter Christ for themselves to truly be changed. We talked about this last week. It's what it means to be born again. It's the same thing with Scripture. We can be informed by Scripture without ever being transformed by it. We can agree with someone else's testimony about Jesus without ever experiencing Him firsthand, which actually may be more common than we realize. I'm sure you've all had occasions where you're in proximity for some period of time with a stranger. Like when I would fly from Alaska to England for seminary, I'd be on airplanes sitting next to total strangers for hours on end. Maybe it's a line at a sporting event outside of a stadium or a store or in a waiting room. We all end up in situations from time to time in close proximity with people that we don't know. And inevitably, 
I find especially with men that if we're in conversation for any amount of time, one of the first questions that they will usually ask is, what do you do for a living? Right. And so, of course, I respond with, I'm a pastor. And in almost every single instance, there, there are occasional exceptions, but the majority of the time, the person who asks me that will immediately respond to my statement about being a pastor with some kind of explanation about their own faith or their church membership or religious affiliation and on and on. It's like they feel the need to justify themselves to me or relate to me on a religious level because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor. Well, of course, they don't have to do that. But that's a response that people have probably from years of cultural conditioning, especially people who've grown up in the South, right? Because we're a part of the, the Bible Belt, which for the record, I'm deeply grateful for. But anyway, what I found among those who offer those kinds of reactions for the most part are two different types of responses. They will either share a personal testimony or they'll share what I call a secondhand testimony. And it becomes obvious often very quickly which ones have had their own encounter with Christ as opposed to those who are merely familiar with someone else's encounter with Christ. And yet they often still share that secondhand testimony in the hope that it will somehow include them into the, the fold of the religious club that they think we all belong to. Uh, for instance, the person who offers a personal testimony will invariably respond to my statement about being a pastor with something like, oh man, that's great. I, I know I wouldn't be able to make it in this life without Christ in my life. Or, yeah, I accepted Christ into my life when I was a kid, but man, his walk is stronger now than it, than it ever has been before. In other words, they'll share a personal story about their own encounter with Jesus Christ, whereas those without a personal testimony will very often share a second-hand testimony. They'll say things like, yeah, that's great. My uh, grandmother took me to church for years when I was a kid. Or, yeah, my wife goes to a Bible study every Tuesday with her friends or I inherited my granddaddy's Bible and, and, and I look at it once in a while or my family's name has been on the membership at Maranatha Praise Tabernacle of Our Lord II for three generations. <laughs> They'll share a story that has to do with someone else's encounter without ever alluding to any kind of personal encounter with Christ of their own. Now, I don't want to oversimplify the point because everyone's story is different and you can't determine everything about a person in one conversation but the fact remains when it comes to experiencing Jesus Christ there are no secondhand encounters to truly know him you must encounter him for yourself and yet unfortunately I believe there are a lot of folks who believe that they're all good with God because of the people that they're related to or affiliated with or because of some kind of religious tradition in their life but when it comes to Christ, there are no secondhand encounters. We, we must, each one of us, have our own personal encounter with him. So here's the bottom line. Every moment of this life, every breath that we take, every beat of the human heart, every single encounter that we have is sacred. It's all Sacred because it has all been preordained by a holy and sovereign, all knowing, all seeing, all powerful, all present over all of creation, God. 
So he's prepared ahead of time a fixed amount of these sacred encounters for each one of us. A fixed amount of opportunities to make the most of what he's given us. A fixed amount of chances to share our story, our testimony, our personal encounter with Jesus. There isn't one of those encounters that is an accident. None of them are ordinary. Each one of them is singularly sacred, prepared for us by God so that every person that we encounter can have the opportunity for their own personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Think of the lives that were changed for all of eternity because Jesus, as tired as he was, took the time and effort to ask for a drink of water. Not only was this woman forever changed by that encounter, but so were the lives of many others, and who knows how many others after that. But because of a sacred encounter at a well at break time in the middle of the day. I just want to point out very quickly one other brief detail. When the Samaritan woman responds to Jesus' request for water in verse 9, she says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The phrase, have no dealings, in the Greek, is the verb, sunkra omai. It's more specifically translated as to, to share the use of things. In other words, Jesus was not just asking for a drink of water. He was asking to drink from her own water jar. He was asking to share some of her water. It's sort of like the difference between buying someone a cup of coffee and then handing it to them on your way out of the coffee shop, which would certainly be a nice gesture, or buying someone a cup of coffee and asking them to come sit at your table while you enjoy your coffee together. Jesus wasn't merely saying, give me some water. He was saying, let's share some water. It wasn't a command. It was an invitation Can you see the difference? This is the ultimate example for us to follow when we encounter those who don't know Christ. We invite them to be a part of our lives, even if just for a few moments of conversation or maybe for a cup of coffee or a meal or a few kind words. Because every encounter is sacred and Jesus teaches us to make the most of every single one of them. And so in the beginning of this message, I suggested that we ask ourselves, is it possible that, that I could be having a, a greater impact in the lives of others for the sake of the gospel than I'm currently having? And I would submit to you today, based on Jesus' own example, that we can significantly increase the impact that we're having in the lives of others for the sake of the gospel, not only in our long-term relationships, our marriages, our families, our friendships, but even in the simplest of encounters as we go about the busyness of our day if we will but quiet our minds and open our hearts to those around us seeing them how Jesus sees them and then listen for the guiding voice of the Holy Spirit that will surely direct us to them let's not try and miss One more sacred encounter. Let's pray.